Good morning, church family. I was joking with the boys yesterday and this morning, two things you don't want to hear at a preacher's mouth when he gets up to speak. New discovered truths coming from the Bible this morning. And uh, the second one would be, let's see what the Lord's going to say to us this morning. Uh, you would hope that, uh, yeah, that's not the case. But in some measure, um, my prayer this morning is that these things that the Lord is opening up my eyes to afresh and anew would be something that everybody gets something from this morning, as well as, uh, yeah, that the Lord would uh, meet everybody where they are this morning. Um, I was in prayer about this for a couple of weeks when I was asked if I would consider. I brought it before the Lord, and it took about two weeks to be able to hear the word yes, and then another two weeks after that before the Lord finally gave me what I was supposed to speak on. Uh, I was praying yesterday, not yesterday, last Saturday, eight days ago, and uh, the Lord gave me the topic of restoration. Uh, and I firmly believe, and I'll go on record saying something I've never said before, this is absolutely what the Lord would have us think on and meditate on and hear about this morning. Um, I'm excited, and yet with a, a bit of trepidation this morning talking about the subject of restoration. Um, I'm going to start in Galatians chapter 6, reading Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2, and uh, that's going to be the linchpin, the pivot point from which we will launch into the scriptures this morning. Um, Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I want to hit this again. I just it's so important. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Heavenly Father, this is your word, not mine. Uh, this is your message, not mine. This is uh, what I truly believe with all my heart this morning, what the Spirit would say to the church. And so uh, I just ask, as has been prayed uh, from me and by others for me, um, if there's anything unclear, I'll take the blame, Lord. But I truly would like it to be that anything that is clear and understood and impactful, that you would get all the praise and all the glory this morning. And so I just ask again, uh, May there please be something that you can speak through me this morning that is for everybody, that everybody gets something this morning. Everybody gets fed. That nobody walks away unchanged. Just like, uh, just like so many who came to look you in the face, Lord Jesus. Nobody could go back the way they came. So may that be the case this morning. Amen. I've been the recipient of this. I have been the recipient of godly brothers ministering to me in my heart and into my life through the spirit, through the word of God to see me restored from a fallen position to bring me to a point where now you are witnessing the fruits of it by the very nature of me standing here preaching to you this morning. I've been there. No man is so good that they would not stumble into the most horrific things given the right set of circumstances. And if not for the grace of God, many of us would if we haven't already. 
I'm just gonna say it bluntly. I'm not gonna get into my story because it impacts too many people and I don't wanna open wounds, but at the same time, I will tell you boldly and bluntly this morning, God is in the restoration business. He is in the restoration business. Uh, my wife and I, on the odd occasion when we get to get away, we uh, stay in a hotel somewhere and get away from the kids. Uh, one of the things we love to do is we love to turn on the TV and watch those home renovation shows. And it's interesting to see how they, they take and they, you know, a little coat of paint here and rip out old wallpaper there and maybe, you know, move a railing over there. That is not what God is about. God is not into renovation, he is into restoration. He takes the building, he guts it completely, and he builds it brand new. And when he's done with it, it's better than when it was original. I'll say that again, when he is done, it's better than what it was originally. That's what God does. And you can think of a number of different people that were, God has done restorations in their lives whether because of sin or whether because of trial and struggle or whatever else it is, people that were restored. You can think of Joseph. Young man, a little bit foolhardy, hadn't learned the lesson how to guard his tongue yet, kind of his mouth got him into trouble, yeah. But it was out of jealousy, not out of something that he had done where he was falsely accused, he was thrown into a pit, then he's thrown into a dungeon, and the Lord saw fit to restore him and he was in a better spot than he ever could have been. And you know, what was meant for evil turned out to be for good because he was now in a position to help his brethren in a way that he never could have before. He was left better in the end than he was at the beginning when he was restored to that position of prominence. We can look at Job, lost everything. And when he was done, not only was his depth of faith and relationship with the Heavenly Father greater than ever before, but he received everything in double when he was done. Two men who were in that act of restoration that had not been put there because of something that they had necessarily done. And then you have the nation of Israel because of their numerous wanderings. When they are restored through their repentance, they are always left in a better state than they were before. You can look at King David. King David is an amazing example, and I'm gonna to get to that later this morning, Lord willing. After his sin with Bathsheba, when he was restored afterwards, there was something that was there before, that was there then that was not there before. There was something of the Lord he understood that he knew, an intimacy, something that was greater. It was his sin that put him there. And it was a sin that started not when he actually committed the act, being at the wrong place at the wrong time, doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing, up in the middle of the night, walking around <laughs> castle walls, spying out when he should have been at war. No, it started years and years before that. It talks about when he gets this wonderful wife, and the very next verse is, oh yeah, and he married these two other ladies too. He had a wandering eye many, many, many years earlier, and we saw the fruit of it years later. No man, when he stumbles into sin, no man, when he stumbles into sin, it's all of a sudden he goes, gets up on a Sunday and he's having a spiritual day, and then he goes to bed, and Monday morning, he gets up and he goes and commits a murder or something. That's not the way it works. 
It's this death by degrees, slowly and methodically over time, letting the eye and the heart wander. To be able to be restored, I gotta take a rabbit trail here. To be able to be restored means you have to shine that spotlight into every dark recess and corner of your heart and make sure that everything is purged. Because if you don't, whatever's in those dark corners you have not purged and cleansed will grow back and it will grow back worse than before. That's what's required. So this idea of restoration, to be able to understand this concept, I had to ask myself, well, what is restoration? I've lived through it experientially, but now how do I articulate that? How do I define that? How do I explain that to somebody? And I found I wasn't really able to. I didn't have the words to put it into an explanation to be able to share it. So I did what you're supposed to do. Started digging through the scriptures, and man, the gospel is a message of restoration. The gospel is a message of restoration. I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 3, and I want to start big and then zero in through Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 again, and then take that to a prayer of restoration that we see in the Psalms. Acts chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. And it says this, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his prophets since the world began. Let's flip over to the book of Romans and let's put some verses to tie these things and drive this point home. I'm going to go to Romans chapter 8. And I'm going, to believe, I'm going to begin in verse 19 this morning. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope. The gospel is a message of hope. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are amazing. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. This idea of all of creation being subject to bondage. All of this, all of creation is not as it's supposed to be. One of the things that separates us from just being mere animals, there's a lot I know, is this ability to ask the question, Why? And oftentimes, it's not just why, it's why me? Why me? 
Because we all have this understanding, we all have this knowledge that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's kind of odd. It's like trying to explain wet to a fish. It doesn't know any different. And we have this sense, we say things like nobody's perfect. But how do we know that? We say things are not as they're supposed to be. How do we know that? Let's go back to Genesis chapter one. And I'm gonna just pull a couple of just snippets out. The first day, let there be light, and God saw the light, that it was good. That it was good. Then he said in verse six, let the firmament in the midst of the waters divide from the waters from the waters, right? And then in verse eight, he called the firmament heaven, and so evening and morning were the second day. You continue down in verse nine, oh, sorry, verse 10, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, herb that yields seed, the fruit that yields seed, according, fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. It continues explaining on, on day three when all the plants and everything else like that were created. And again, God saw that it was good on the third day. Then, remember there's light, but there's no light sources. Then he creates the sun, moon, and stars, almost as an afterthought. And he looks at all this at the end of this, and he says in uh, verse 18, and God saw that it was good. And so the evening and the morning were the fourth day. You get the point? When God created everything at the beginning, it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And innate knowledge that God has implanted in us, I believe, tells us and gives us the understanding we know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And apart from that revelation he's implanted into our hearts, we would probably never know. Just like a fish can't understand what it means to be wet because that's all he knows. And that's the state that we find ourselves in. Continue on. Then he brings forth living creatures and God says it was good. And then verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth. He blesses them, he multiplies them. I'm sorry, he blesses them and says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything. God looks at everything he's created at the end of all this and he doesn't say it is good. He says it is very good. No lightning storms wreaking havoc and starting forest fires. We look at that and we say, that is a beauty to behold. Because we don't know any better. We're looking at a destructive force and saying it's beautiful. We look at something like the Grand Canyon, which is the result of massive trauma to the surface of the earth. And we say, wow, this is beautiful. And we're looking at something destructive and saying it's beautiful. We don't know any different. When a lion tears the throat out of a gazelle, that to us is normal, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. When it talks about the restoration of all things, you can go to Isaiah, and it talks about a time when the lion will lay down with the lamb, a child can put its hand in the, the den of a viper, and the viper won't bite it. That's the way it's supposed to be. When God is in control, when people give God his right place, then you see a colt that's never been ridden before is able to be ridden and doesn't buck the guy off. In this case, the Lord Jesus, right? 
or you see a fish swim up, spit out some coins. When God is in control, things are as they should be. And we don't know any different, and yet we sometimes, by experience, we don't know any different, and yet by ex- somehow we know that's not the way it's supposed to be. And that's part of what God is alluding to in his word. That's what is being alluded to when it talks about the restoration of all things. It's not just broken relationships and heartbreak. It's all of creation is not the way it's supposed to be. And so when it comes to this time of restoration of all things, it's God setting things right. It's God setting things right. And at the pinnacle of his creation, that's where he has man. And man is not right. We say, oh, nobody's perfect. How do we know that? Because God implanted a conscience in us to know I'm not there. There's two different words that they use for sin that I have in mind. One of them we talk about often. It's the idea of missing the mark. It's got the analogy that is often preached and used about archery. You don't know how far off the mark you are until the arrow actually hits the target. And then that little degree here, that little degree, that tenth of a degree there, it shows you how far off the bullseye you really are. But one of the other words in the Old Testament for sin means to be completely lacking. It means to be empty. It means to not have what it takes because we don't. I hope I'm explaining that well. Because we don't. And so it's interesting because now we have this thing today which we all strive, we all know about, this thing that sometimes it's used as a dirty word, religion. Religion, the etymology of the word religion is re legare, re to do over, legare, to bind, to tie back. It's the same word that we get ligament from, that which attaches bone to bone, keeps things in their proper place. Religion is this attempt to bind ourselves back to God, to bind ourselves back to the spiritual again but we're the problem. We don't have the strength to do it. And whether you're a believer or you're not, the story is still the exact same. God is not into religion. And yeah, God is into relationship. Let's not overstate our case and say that God hates religion. James tells us pure and undefiled religion is to care for widows and orphans. Okay? So God is not speaking negatively against religion. He speaks negatively against false religion. So let's be careful we don't overstate our our case a little bit here. But God is not into religion in that sense either. He is into restoration. And if you want to look through the scriptures and look and study this idea of restoration, there's about 12 different adjectives that I came up in my studies that point to what this all entails. This idea of returning. This idea of returning something. For example, you're out, you're walking in the back 40 and you see your neighbor's donkey running through the field. It is a moral imperative according to the law of God that you go out there and you capture that thing and you return it back to your neighbor. You have restored it to his neighbor. The idea of renewing something. The walls have fallen down and they were restored. They were rebuilt. They were restored. 
the idea of reconciling, to be restored. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation as Christians. Why? Because we were reconciled. That divide, that binding ourselves back to God again that's so needed, that religion can't do, that's what Jesus did when he died. I use this analogy often. It's one of my favorites. Hopefully I don't get people rolling their eyes because they've heard it too many times. I come home from work. The kids had just been in a mangled mess in their behavior all day. And I have promised them that I am going to come home and I'm gonna take them out riding bikes around the neighborhood. But when I walk in the door, I can't be in right standing and good relationship with them because there's something in the way. It's called disobedience, it's called sin. And until that sin has been removed, I cannot be reconciled or restored to right relationship with my children and bless them and ride around the neighborhood on bikes with them. That's what reconciliation with the Father is. And that also means, by implication, we will be reconciled to each other because that gospel should flavor how we live our lives that way as well. There's the idea of repayment. I'm driving down the road and I run over my neighbor's mule or goat. Let's say goat. It's a little bit more likely, right? And what do I, yeah, dog. Um, and I'm, I'm, I run over my neighbor's goat. Okay, I'll say Old Testament. I'm riding in my chariot and I run over my neighbor's goat, right? And I am to restore that. I'm to replace it. I'm to repay him for what I have taken from him inadvertently. But notice every single of these words. How about the idea of healing or the idea of mending to rejoin joints that have become disjointed to rejoin those things. It is now restored. You've now got back that, that motion, that range of motion and stuff again, right? But notice how every single one of these synonyms that I'm talking about all start off with that little prefix, re. Restoration means to bring something back to a future, to a, sorry, a past state. To bring something back to a past state. And when God does that, he does it better than it was in original condition. It's a reversal of fortunes. It's bringing back to a former good state, and in God's case, he improves upon it because he is a God of abundance and mercy. One day, God is going to take everything and set it right. Not just creation, but also the pinnacle of his creation. He gives you the option to taste eternity now and be restored to right relationship with him as well. That's the gospel. The gospel is not just a message of hope, it's a message of restoration. This idea of restoration has come from a Greek word, which I think is really interesting. I think it encapsulates all of this perfectly. Apokatastasis, or apokatahistomy. Two different words which basically denote the same idea. Apo, away from. Kata, to be in contrary position or against. And then histomy, the place in which we stand, a standing. To literally be moved away from a contrary standing. If you are not in relationship with the Lord God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in a standing that is in contrariness to God. 
And he wants to restore and reconcile. He wants to bring you away from that position of contrary standing. And he's not going to do it just with us. He's going to do it with all of creation one day. Now let's go back to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. It's really hard, I gotta say this, it's really hard to explain to somebody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ what they're missing out on. And it's equally hard sometimes when somebody who's fallen away from that right standing before the Lord to remind them of what it is that they're also missing out on. It's difficult. Nothing but the Spirit of God can move in a man's heart to be able to do that, and that has genuinely and sincerely been my prayer for the last week, at least, in preparing for this morning. That the Spirit would explain something that I don't think in my human abilities I'm capable of doing. This idea of forgiveness, if we have been forgiven, how can we help but to forgive. That's part of the gospel. Being forgiven of our sins, and therefore, we ought to have it in our hearts, since we have been forgiven such a great debt, to be able to forgive smaller debts of others. It's the exact same thing here when it talks about restoration. You who are spiritual, you who understands what it means to be reconciled to God, what it means to be restored to relationship with the divine in a way that we couldn't do ourselves. That should flavor how we interact with each other as believers. When we see somebody struggling, we see somebody needing to be restored, when we see somebody who has become disjointed from the body of Christ, since we have been restored and renewed and regenerated, then that is how we ought to see how our lives are flavored and our interactions with each other. Not just building each other up, but sometimes picking each other up when we fall. Praise God that I can stand here this morning and share this, that my experience was not like many of us. We have a propensity as believers to shoot the wounded. Man, that is horrific. We have a habit of shooting the wounded. How sinful is that? If we have been restored to relationship with our Heavenly Father, then that should flavor how we treat each other. You who are spiritual, it's not saying that some are more spiritual than others. You who are of the Spirit and in the Spirit. You who has been made alive by the Spirit. You who the Spirit indwells. By the word of God, by the spirit of God, you are in a position to do something. It's saying you who are spiritual, restore. It's an imperative. Knowing from whence you came, you should do the same. This idea of restoring somebody. It's literally, you have a body and you got a joint that's dislocated. How do we take that person in the body of Christ and get them relocated properly? How do we see that mended? How do we do that? In a spirit of gentleness, 
in a spirit of gentleness. And then I'm going to have to add this. Considering yourself lest you also be tempted with wisdom and prudence. I will go this far to help you, brother, but I will go no further. Because I love you, but I love the Lord Jesus more. And I used to have this idea that you take, say, for example, a recovering alcoholic and you'd go so far, but be careful you don't slip into the same alcoholism. And that's what it means, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Be cautious for this. I don't think it means that anymore. I think considering yourself lest you also be tempted, when you're trying to help somebody and you get spit on, just as the Lord Jesus tries to help us and we sometimes spit on him, you can get angry, you can get bitter. You fall into temptation. It can be any manner of different things when it talks about falling into temptation in this matter. It's not falling into the same thing that that person's struggling with that he's fallen into. It could be a whole med- different medley of different things you could fall into. It could be anger, it could be bitterness, it could be unforgiveness, it could be pride. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like that sinner. There's a whole host of different temptations that could be fallen into with this. That's what the warning is about. That's what the warning is about. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And that puts into words the experience of my life the last two and a half, three years, I guess. Godly men who have been impacted by the power of God and the spirit of God, exhibiting the love of God to walk alongside and bring me to a spot where now I can be here sharing this and preaching the gospel. That is the message. And if you don't know him and you look at the world and you say the world's not as it's supposed to be, and not just from disease and not just from broken relationships, but from thorns and thistles and weather patterns that cause and wreak havoc and everything else, you're looking at the world and you're seeing the result of sin ravaging the entire planet. And you can know what it means to start with the pinnacle of God's creation, being man restored back to relationship with him, with the hope of one day seeing the lion lay down with the lamb, and the child putting his hand in a viper's den and not being bit and poisoned. The gospel is a message not just of forgiveness, but it is a restoration and of hope. I want to go. I want to go to Psalm chapter fifty-one. Our, uh, our dear brother Josh preached through Psalm 51 a number of months ago. And the same week that he was led of the Lord, the Lord had impressed upon my heart Psalm 51 as something that should be preached in the near future. Never shared that with him. And I'm really feeling that the Lord is leading me this morning to go back to this again. I'm going to, if you'll bear with me, read through the whole chapter, through the whole psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity 
and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and my mother in sin conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. They shall offer bulls on your altar. I used to look at this as a, the anatomy of repentance. And I gotta say, I don't look at it that way now. I look at this as a prayer for restoration. I don't look at this as the anatomy of repentance. I look at this as a prayer for restoration. There's a number of things in this that just, just coincide with what my experience was. One of the things that he says in here in verse 11 and 12, I'm gonna jump around a lot in this, but it says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. There's this idea that goes with it. When you are in sin, when you are trapped and you need to be restored, you are alienated. You've broken that good fellowship with the Father and because you have broken that good fellowship with the Father, there's a sense of feeling alienated from everybody else around you while you're at it. You just feel like you don't belong. That's where reconciliation, part of restoration comes in. And when you are at right relationship with the Father, now the relationships that are this way start to make sense again. And you realize it was all in your head. Why? Because you had shame that was built up your sin was ever before your face, it says. My sin's always before me. And you get trapped in this cycle. You get trapped in this cycle where it's, you can't forget it. You can't hide from it. You can't ignore it. So the best that you can hope for is distract yourself from it. And how do you distract yourself from it? From doing the same thing that caused you to feel the shame in the first place often. And again, I'm not preaching to anybody. I'm just sharing my heart where I was. You could be sitting in a prayer meeting 
if you even make it to one, if your shame doesn't prevent you from showing up. And the whole time you're praying, you're thinking inside yourself, if people only knew what I was really like inside. That also has the added curse, if you will, if I can use that word, of maybe causing disunity with the people that you're praying with and dampening the move of the Holy Spirit in the middle of that meeting too, which means as sin often does in a physical way and in a spiritual way, it causes the body to be disjointed. Walking with a limp all the time, hoping nobody notices. In my particular case, not only was it a destruction of relationships around me and in my own home, I literally got to the point where I was starting to have panic attacks because I couldn't bring my, myself to confess and deal with my sin. I'd be driving to work in the morning and I'd just be overwhelmed, heart racing, the body physically manifesting because of the fact the spiritual condition was so bad off and I had hidden it for so long. The bones that you have broken may rejoice. I'm going to say something. When, when we do get restored, it doesn't mean that there are going to be no earthly consequences to that sin, to what you have done. King David, even though he was restored to right fellowship, he was able to write such wonderful psalms when he was restored. Even though he went through that, he still had earthly consequences he had to face as a result of his sin, didn't he? And you may still have to face some of those earthly consequences, but you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to be on your own for it. You got brothers and sisters that will be there beside you to pick you up and help carry you. The same way when you are destitute, apart from God, estranged from God, needing salvation, the Lord comes down and he loves you before you can first love him. The way while you were still yet a sinner, he loved you in that he died for you. So he says in this, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. It's literally this act of bowing to an inferior. It's akin to mercy. The idea of showing kindness to somebody to whom you have the power to punish. I know that you could be punishing me right now but you are showing me mercy. You are choosing not to give me what I deserve. He's actually asking God, God, I know I did wrong here. Please don't punish me. And God does it. And God does it. And then beyond that, he extends grace. And he gives you everything you don't deserve according to his riches and glory. And then he says, blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Literally, white out on the page. Blotted out. Can't see it anymore. And yet, 
not only does he blot it out, white out, can't see it anymore, cleanse me, purify me, purge me. It's 1 John 1, 9. Confess and he will forgive, but he doesn't just forgive, he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. There's reconciliation. There's restoration in the form of mending and healing. There's renewing, which is part of the, the idea of restoring. Creating a clean heart and renewing a steadfast spirit. Something that was once there, that has been tarnished, has been damaged, and he brings it back. He refreshes it. All restoration talk, this whole psalm. And then there's something else in this which is just amazing. I haven't talked about it yet. Re-equipping and re-qualifying. If you're hearing my voice this morning, you're seeing that part of restoration. Re-equipping and re-qualifying. Remember John, Mark? The big split between Paul and Barnabas? And years later, Paul said, bring him with you. He is useful to me for ministry. He was re-equipped. He was re-qualified for the task. He was renewed. He was restored. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Not walking under a dark cloud all the time anymore. When you're walking in sin, that's what it does. I mean, it just, it destroys your ability to even think clearly. You can be so tarnished in your thought process that you can justify just about any course of action because you just can't even think rationally anymore. That's what sin does. Even the wisest of men when they fall into sin can be dummies. Do we need to talk about Solomon? And then he says this, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness O Lord, open my lips and my, sh and my mouth shall show forth your praise. When it's all come full circle, then I can be useful to you again, Lord. And those works that you created beforehand for me to walk in, I can walk in those again. I hope you guys aren't feeling like this is a bit of a downer. Because this is amazing. There should be cause for praise and rejoicing that God does this. He said he's going to do it. We see him doing it in our midst, and yet he will do it to the full in the future. And it's not just that I'm now able to freely worship the Lord and freely commune with the Father, and freely fellowship in the spirit with my church family. But now I've got even greater content to praise him and worship him for. 
I've got a greater, deeper understanding of why we praise him to begin with. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. And I'm going to say amen and leave it there. Heavenly Father, um, I just pray in grace that everything that you want us to take away from this this morning, we walk away from it. We walk away with it from this place this morning. I pray that even now the ears that, the, that have been opened by you, that, that the words that we have heard may continue to just bounce around in our heads, causing us to think, causing us to wonder, causing us to be in awe, causing us to be in awe of how you, Father, are a God of restoration. You want to set things right. Help us in our hearts to move a little bit closer, Lord, to being against that contrary stance and to be walking intimately hand in hand with you. Please. Amen.